have to say before I start that I was sort of, first of all, taken slightly aback at being asked to come and speak here, and then slightly daunted by the fact that there are two professors here, and I'm a jobbing researcher. So I, I, I mean, I, I have to say that we, we, we do research across a range of areas. It's not just a sort of single area, and my PhD was in a completely different area. It was primary children's understanding of mathematics, and it's kind of research skills from that, and I've developed my interest in research generally around learning and teaching, but, you know, higher education, schools, and even workplace learning. Uh, what I was asked to speak about here was sort of some of the work we've done, I think, on the looking at higher education across Europe, which grew out of a, a project we were doing, which was called LLL 2010, Lifelong Learning 2010, which started in 2005, so it was a five-year project with 13 European countries participating, um, not as well as Russia was number 13. So it, it was a very, very big project. It didn't focus specifically on higher education, but as part of that, we looked at some aspects around the widening access and Bologna process um, in, in you know, the, 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 the social dimension of the Bologna process. So I was going to speak about that now. Now, I'm not sure how familiar people are with it, all the aspects around that. So I'm going to give you, um, let me just move forward. Um, I was going to give you an overview, uh, overview of the Bologna pro process, which you might already know, but I just didn't know. I thought if I start talking about it and some people don't know it, it might be difficult. Um, and then focus in on the social dimension of the Bologna process and also look at the relationship between Bologna and EU. Because certainly some people you speak to think that Bologna is EU whereas in fact it's not. Um, I want to look at part just some data on participation rates coming from Eurostat on uh, higher education and sort of labour market um, outcomes, etc., across U Europe, in order to sort of emphasise the need for widening access, however it's done. And I want to look at some of the, the sort of policy or the, the sort of issues around widening participation in European countries at, the, at, the, at the, the bigger level, you know, focus on access, and then move on to look at a, a, a couple of examples, uh, or an example from three countries, um, which draw some research um, from Dominic Orr, who is based at the Euro student, um, and then think about sort of stratification, what happens in relation to widening access and some conclusion and reflections. I, I hope that's okay. And if at any point you want to stop me, uh, feel free to do so, uh, particularly as we're quite small. So just thinking about the role of EU in higher education, education was not part of the treaty in Rome, and it's just gradually come in, um, but it's not part of, of any kind of legal structures. Um, it was an initial emphasis within the EEC on vocational training that uh, brought it into to, uh, the EU which was particularly related to the free movement of labour. But the EU has become increasingly involved through some of the higher education programmes, community programmes, um, both in terms of um, research and in terms of, for example, Erasmus programmes and um, uh, student mobility. And the Lisbon strategy in particular brought in the link to research with the framework funding um, the, the big programmes for European research. Um, I mean, uh, several of you are probably familiar with the FP6 and FP7 
uh, the, the lifelong learning project I referred to was the Framework 6 project. I've since been involved with the Framework 7 project, which involved Ireland, amongst others, but on religious education across Europe. Um, and of course the modernising agenda, um, which created greater links with the Bologna process. And it features uh, in the EU 2020 strategy in that the EU has this indicated goal that 40% of 30 to 34-year-olds should hold a tertiary qualification by 2020. Um, but cooperation is encouraged through the open method of coordination. In other words, it's soft um, governance and it's not legally binding what they're doing. Um, the Bologna process itself is, is a result of intergovernmental, intergovernmental cooperation. So some key dates, the 1998 Sorbonne Declaration, which was four national ministers from France, Germany, Italy and the UK, and somebody has referred to it as taking place in a very smoky room amongst people who wanted to kind of impose their agenda, but <laughs> I suppose there's discussions about that. By 1999, the Bologna Declaration was signed by 29 countries, although some say it was 28 and it was two ministers from the same country making it 29 signatures. I don't know. I haven't managed to get to the bottom of that. Um, and the aim was to create the European higher education area by 2010, which has happened. And by 2012, 47 countries were signed up to Bologna. And within the Bologna process, there's always been a kind of um, paying attention, should we say, to the social dimension. But it was there in the background. And in 2007, at the London meeting, um, there was an emphasis on clarifying the social dimension in the Bologna process. What does it actually, what do we actually mean when we're talking about it? So I'm going to come back to that um, to show you that on a later slide. But I think most of you probably be familiar with the initial aims of the Bologna process was to develop comparable degree structures, two main cycles. I was actually quite worried when I sort of looked at this slide because I was looking at, at this thing sitting out on the shelf there and then it said in here some myths about Bologna. Um, and it said, uh, it's fair to say that Bologna has not been a burning issue in uh, the UK at the moment. And I think, in part, the fact that the UK has not been particularly involved with it is because there was involvement at the beginning. And actually, this sort of two main cycles, undergraduate and graduate, sits well alongside what was there already. So one of the people I interviewed recently on higher education in the UK said, we are Bologna-proof, so we don't have to engage with it. But there was also um, an, an aim to produce a system of credits um, so you can have credit transfer, so that there's credit attached to the, the learning you undertake. Um, and that was very closely linked to promoting mobility in Europe, so that you could take your credit with you. And actually Scotland was one of the early ones, I don't think England had it, I think maybe Ireland, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. had a very early uh, credit and qualification system. And so you, can, you have links uh, across, the Scottish system came into uh, being in 2001, but there was a system before that set up. And it actually influenced the, the European system, although it's slightly different. Um, and the aim was obviously to uh, promote European cooperation in quality assurance as well. 
uh, and promote a European dimension in higher education that came out of, of Prague. And I think in part, this has been argued by some, it was um, the links with the EU was to create a kind of European identity um, for higher education. And as I said, there was an emphasis on lifelong learning, which included the need to strengthen social cohesion and promote equal opportunities. But what's, I think, really interesting, if you go onto the website for the European University Association, it is very careful in presenting that we are not harmonising national systems. In other words, we're not forcing people to do things, but we're there to pro provide the tools to connect things. It's to allow diversity of national systems, at, but to increase transparency. <coughs> but then at the bottom you come, they've all agreed to sign up for a comparable three-cycle um, three degree system. And I understand, Andre, you might know more about this in Germany, I understand that there's been some unease in some countries about the impact that this has had on the degree structures in other countries. So I say, in, in the UK, it's not been problematic. In England, the three-year degree was there already. In Scotland, we have the four-year degree. But it's not been uh, in, uh, impacted on to a strong extent by the Bologna process. But other countries have had to, because I think the, the, the degrees were longer, and they were asked to sort of cut back. Um, so, and there has also, what I alluded to, been a considerable critique on the Bologna process. But it's an undemocratic process which lacks accountability. Um, it's a worrying that many of the most crucial and influential decisions are taken in intergovernmental context, where there's a power shift to the executive at the expense of national parliaments, and that it, they're implemented by means of soft laws, which means that the democratic legitimacy is doubtful. And I think that refers to the notion that, for example, if uh, I, 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 this is my punch that, for example, if you have credit transfer, a student can't actually hold another institution to account for not accepting them with the credit coming from somewhere else. So I think the fact that there isn't any kind of legality or bindingness, binding aspect of it means that um, you're more at the mercy of, of uh, the sort of receiving institutions, for example. Um, so I think there's some interesting issues about the whole process and how it operates. And as I said, I would come back to the social dimension in the Bologna process, uh, which came to the fore in London. I mean, it, it had been there before, but in London in 2009, there was an aim that higher education should foster social cohesion and reduce inequalities. And the aim was that the student body entering, participating in, and completing higher education at all levels should reflect the diversity of our populations. And that's actually, if you think about it, quite a, a tall order in terms of, certainly if you look even at the UK, that the number of students coming in from non-traditional backgrounds is considerably smaller than people coming in the tra traditional route, and particularly from much higher socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, so the, the aim was to pr uh, promote continue our efforts to provide adequate student services, create more flexible learning pathways into and within higher education, and to widen participation at all levels on the basis of equal opportunity. So clearly there's been a lot of work going on uh, in the area, 
And there is a good reason for this. Um, I don't know how, how much you like data and bar charts and things like that, but I thought that it was important to stress why it is very important to have some form of widening axis. And you can see from this one, this is 2013, looking at educational level using ISCID levels. Is everybody familiar with ISCID levels? Okay, ISCID levels, I think, were developed by the OECD, but they're used by Europe to classify different levels of education. So zero to two is up to lower secondary. It's basic education up to lower secondary. ISCID's levels three and four are basically taking upper secondary or uh, non, what they call non-advanced tertiary education, so some vocational education. And ISCID level 5 and 6 are um, tertiary education, <coughs> it's higher education, it's um, 5 also includes some of the higher level uh, vocational education that you can have. There are certain problems around ISCID levels which perhaps you should be aware of and that is that it's up to individual countries to classify their different courses by ISCID level. So, for example, in the UK, the only programmes, as far as I understand, and this was in relation to the adult education survey that took place a few years ago, that are class classified in the UK at ISCID level 4 are access to higher education. Whereas if you go to countries like Austria, and I think possibly Germany, you might be able to tell me, there are some quite high-level vocational courses, which may well, in, in our context, be equivalent to something like foundation degrees or H&D, um, the vocational H&Ds, which we classify at ISCID level 5. So, it, you know, the, you, you have to sort of think about those things when you're interpreting this. But I think it's, nonetheless, you can see that in terms of employment, getting employment, um, you are at an advantage if you've got tertiary education. And, and people particularly who've got ISCID level zero to two qualifications or no qualifications are really disadvantaged um, in terms of gaining employment. And I want to come back to that in, in terms of levels of, of poverty. I have here a range of countries. I, haven't, I couldn't get in all the EU countries. I thought it would get too cluttered. But I did try to <coughs> select countries that would represent um, Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries, um, obviously UK because we're here, and but some of the Southern European, Eastern European, but also the distinctions between the, the Northern Eastern Europeans and the Southern Eastern Europeans, because there, there's been a tendency to think of the Eastern Bloc as they join the EU as being quite similar countries. But when you look at their le different levels of education, <laughs> there are quite big distinctions between them, and there are big differences in terms of um, what has happened post um, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and you, you, can see that you can see that certain countries you're particularly disadvantaged, for example, Hungary, um, Czech Republic. Um, and the Czech Republic is interesting because there isn't a huge difference between uh, the ISCID levels 3, 4 and 5, 6. Um, and there is a relatively few people who don't have ISCID level 3, 4 in, in the Czech Republic. In contrast to the UK, for example, which has a higher proportion of what we call needs. So there are, there are big differences in these populations in the different countries, which again, you know, the comparability is, um, is problematic, but 
it gives you something to go by. And this is coming back to the, 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 the strategic goal of the EU of having 40% um, of 30 to 34 years um, in, uh, with a tertiary qualification by uh, 2020. And you can see that some countries are already there um, in terms of this one. There's been movement upwards in all countries, uh, but some countries are quite a long way away from it still. Um, and what is going to happen, I don't know. Romania, Czech Republic, interestingly, I think, um, and Germany. But I think Germany, I would be very interested to hear Andrea's view on that because you have a very sophisticated, I think, vocational, but a very stratified system. But actually, Germany has fared extremely well in the crisis, as has Austria, in terms of youth unemployment. So there's been far, far lower youth unemployment. So whether the sort of drive for tertiary education is where we want to go, you've had far higher um, uh, levels of youth unemployment, for example, in the UK than in Germany. And I think in Germany it's actually gone down very slightly. I think the Netherlands is similar as well. So, um, so there's some interesting issues there about what kind of qualifications we want people to get. Um, and then just looking at gender as well as one of, of, of the other ones, but we know that there are differences in terms of um, women being higher, higher proportion of women settling higher education uh, in virtually all countries, but again, um, Germany and the Netherlands stand out as being slightly different. Estonia is very interesting. Um, sorry? Estonia is very yes, interesting. Yes, Estonia is interesting. And Estonia was one of the countries that we worked with. In fact, they led the project that we were in, and that's a country where there was very high levels of tertiary qualification among the older generation. Whereas if you take Ireland, I think, you, you find, you know, if you go back, it's gone whoosh, it's very high now. Absolutely, I mean, just, you know, in terms of that... I do think I've got Ireland in there, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know, yeah, but, sure. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of, you know, if it was 25 to 35, yeah, it would be sky high. 50 to 64, yeah. it would be very, it would be, very Yes, different. and I did yes. have the figure somewhere, and I'm sorry, I, I didn't actually think when I was doing this, I was just trying to get, get it down to sort of manageable and something that people can see <laughs> proportion. Um, and then finally, uh, final graph, <laughs> um, and that is the at risk of poverty by educational level. So you can see that although there's enormous country variation, you are far more at risk of, of being poor if you are, if you have low qualifications. Um, it, it has moved up in some countries, which I think is scary in terms of the, you know, the with the recession. Uh, so it's increased places like Romania, you might understand why perhaps there's a lot of people moving out of Romania, given that the very high levels, uh, and presumably high level, uh, poor levels of work. Bulgaria, so the southern European, but they stand out as being quite different, as I say, from countries like Estonia, where it's high, but not nearly as high, and yet they were all in this same sort of common uh, Soviet bloc. Uh, and obviously the, the um, Scandinavian countries are relatively lesser, but you're still disadvantaged there. Um, I think Sweden certainly has had a, quite an influx of um, immigrants 
who tend to perform badly. I think in part because they, they, it's a language barrier. They're fairly recent immigrants, and I think it's far more difficult to slot into an education system and do well. Because we see the opposite in the UK, where um, a lot of the immigrant groups actually perform better and have higher levels of, of participation in higher education, um, even those that used not to in the past. Okay, so I want to, I want to um, move on to looking at the sort of widening participation goals across Europe. And this comes from a European um, Education Audiovisual and Culture, Culture Executive Agency. So it's a, it's a pan-EU publication looking at uh, widening participation goals. And most of the countries uh, in the um, European higher education area have general equal opportunities policies. And some of these are assumed also to address widening access for underrepresented groups. Uh, in part, this relates to financial measures, for example, as, as support grants or tax relief, etc. Some have targeted policy measures, and the most common is disability, followed by low socioeconomic status. Uh, some countries focus on specific groups based on ethnicity relevant to their particular country. So some of them focus, for example, on Roma groups um, in Eastern Europe. But most of them lack targets for increasing participation. So there is, there is a kind of vague notion that, yes, we should be doing this. And when you look at the, the, the targets they've set out, there's actually very little emphasis on actually how do we monitor and measure this. And of course, the, the fact that there are different measures in different countries, again, brings back to this whole notion of how can we look at it across Europe um, in terms of making comparisons. And if you move on to a, a, a publication that's just been published uh, in April by Eurydice, it's one of the, their thematic reports, they note that quality the, the most frequently captured student characteristics is qualification prior to entry, and then socioeconomic status and disability, and some do labour market status prior to entry and, during, and some dur during study. And a number of jurisdictions look at the ethnic, cultural, linguistic minority status. Um, interestingly enough, if you look at somewhere like Sweden, you're not allowed to collect data on ethnicity because it's considered, um, I don't know whether you call it racist, but it's, it's, it's not acceptable. So, you know, some of these things don't happen because it, it's not considered right to do it. Um, and some of them have migrant status. But the quote I thought from this report I thought was quite interesting. In some national contexts, issues related to diversity are of marginal national and public interest. And data collected is not being analysed or not, or not being published. Now, we did a report recently. We were asked to do a literature review for the University of Scotland, um, looking at what works in widening access. And actually, the title of it, I've brought a copy if, you, if anybody is interested in it, is Widening Access, Do We Know What Works? And even in the UK, which has actually got quite a lot of things going on, there's very little... Um, empirical evidence that evaluates the outcomes of the measures that are being taken. So I think, I think that it's quite a, a, a problematic area. There's a lot of claims about what's going on, and there's a lot going on, 
but actually systematic gathering of evidence it, that allows you to kind of measure it over a longer period of time is actually hard to come by. Um, and so, as you can see, who is underrepresented in which country? The target groups in different countries vary. So, the targets that you can find in some of the countries, in Belgium, the, uh, the, the, in Flanders, the first generation higher education, which is often used as a proxy for uh, uh, low socioeconomic background, in Finland, male students, and you could see earlier, I didn't have Finland up there, but the, the discrepancy between male and female. In Lithuania, female students into STEM subjects, and of course we still have considerable differences in subject areas when it comes to gender. Um, in Ireland, France, Scotland and England, if this report is right, mature students and low SE status. Now I'm not quite sure where the mature students come from in terms of Scotland, because um, certainly low socioeconomic status and, and school background, etc. is monitored, but uh, I don't know where that comes from. General studies support in Estonia. Uh, Slovenia has not identified specific target groups, but intends to do so. So there is a, a, a real problem about comparability. And in terms of routes into higher education, because one aspect of, of uh, improving and widening access is actually to provide students or prospective students with different routes in. Um, the traditional route is achievement of upper secondary qualification and, and frequently achievement at a certain level, but not in all countries. But there have been over a number of years now second chance routes that have uh, been developed. And these include uh, routes such as recognition of knowledge and skills, outside formal learning, which I have kind of called APEL here, which we used to talk about certainly as accreditation of prior experiential learning and make that as a distinction to APL, which is accreditation of prior learning, where there was some kind of a certificate or something. And also preparatory bridging programs, mainly for those who did not complete up a secondary qualification. An example of that in this country would be access courses. Now, I don't know whether they still have access to HE in England? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we certainly have it in Scotland, and they've been quite successful, I think. Uh, in 2012, 22 Bologna countries offered alternative routes out of 47, uh, and mainly, these were mainly in Western and Northern Europe, um, and approximately the same number in 2014. It was difficult to see. Uh, there was just a map, and I couldn't work out what they meant by jurisdiction, whether that was the different parts of, of Belgium or Belgium as a country. It's very influenced by the school system, and of course the, 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 the routes in are very influenced by the uh, school system, and I refer to it here as comprehensive versus stratified system. So uh, the UK is, is classed as having a comprehensive system, although it um, has a lot of different types of schools. Um, whereas Germany is an example of a str very stratified system where you move into vocational and academic routes quite early on. Uh, and I think Andrea might be talking, I don't know whether you're going to be talking more about that later on. But stratified systems in the past certainly have had very low levels of participation among those who've not uh, gone through the academic stream. And this has been one aspect of what they've been trying to work with. And what I want to just 
give you an overview of here because I think that Andre might be talking far more about the, the German examples. This is drawing on some research by Dominic Orr and a, a colleague of his, Elisabeth Hochthaugen, who are based in Hanover at the Eurostudent. Uh, and they contributed an article to um, an international, uh, an issue that we did on, on higher education in Europe, um, in a special issue. And they were sort of outlining the, the, the different routes that have come out. Uh, upper secondary certificates that they have with limited entry was based on subject, uh, a particular subjects. Um, so if you had done a Fachhochschule qualification, you could move in with certain type of qualifications. But they were also looking at the entry to higher education best based on accreditation of prior learning, work experience and or special examination, uh, which was seen as a slightly different route. And they compared that route uh, uh, with what was going on in Sweden, which has a very long tradition of uh, adult education and a reasonably open system. Uh, so you've been able to go in through adult education, not just through the, 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 the traditional route, but adult education uh, and get the sort of upper secondary through that route or other education, as they call it, or you could come in, and this is far more closer to the uh, entry on the accreditation, which was work experience, 25-4. And the 25-4 stood for the fact that once you were over 25 and had four years work experience, you could draw on that. Um, what, what they call which, which was your work experience that fit, fitted you to kind of get in without having to get the examination. But that's now been discontinued in Sweden. Uh, and the other one you could do was rec recognition of competences, uh, what's called validering of real competence. Uh, and Norway, um, similarly, they had either the traditional route or accreditation of competences. And looking at the impact of these uh, is quite interesting. In Germany, this is drawing purely on the accreditation of prior experience, um, which was used by a very small number of students. But the 3.1% of them came from, a, of, of that very small group came from a low-ed background, and 5.9% were delayed transi transition students. And Dominic, they, they use this low-ed background and delayed transition as a kind of proxy for students who tend to come from um, less traditional backgrounds and often from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So whilst it was a very, very small proportion, it, it, it targeted the groups that they were, were aiming at. In Sweden, the work experience was used by about 5.2 uh, of all students. But of those, 8.7 came from a low-ed background and 7.7 were delayed transitions. Now, that's not there anymore. But what is still there is recognition of competence, which was used by 2.5% of all students going in, 2.7 of those from low economic background and 3.7 from delayed transition. So it's actually not much difference between those groups. And in a sense, Sweden has actually gone backwards, I think, in terms of its uh, promoting access. And I think it was a, a, a reaction to a backlash against 
certain groups in society being seen as advantaged. They, they used to have a, a, an examination as well, which you could go and sit, which was only for people who hadn't gone the traditional route. And if you gained a certain amount in that, you could get access. Now, they then opened that to everybody, and it's been used by far more people from a higher socioeconomic background as a second chance for them to up their grades. Um, so it, it's interesting. I think Sweden is quite an interesting example, of which, which is held, and I come from there, by the way. So. <laughs> but it's, it's actually held up as an example of kind of a shining beacon. Well, I think things have changed, and not necessarily for the better, in terms of uh, you know, promoting social equity, not just in that area. Norway accreditation of competences, and I think arguably they were the, the most successful because 8.5% of all students used it, but 16% came from low educational background, and 23.6% from de were de delayed transitions. Um, and the low education, as I say, parents with no more than lower secondaries have come from, they, 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 they would, what we sometimes call probably first in their family to go to university. Um, and the two-year gap from school was also seen as a kind of proxy for a lifelong learner. But again, often people who dropped out earlier actually and had a delayed transition are, are less likely to come from a highly privileged background, I think. I'm going to skip that because there's so many figures on it and it's going to take forever to do it. But I think the lessons from these uh, case studies is that although the proportion using the check and chance routes is low, it reaches the intended target in a highly stratified system, uh, which has had a, a great, deal, great number of challenges in terms of trying to um, open up access. In Sweden, there was a slightly higher proportion using the scheme, but the scheme that was particularly successful has been dis discontinued. Um, and the, the, the one that's being kept is not as effective at reaching just the target group. Uh, it's less stratified, but it, um, it, because it was mainstreamed, it's actually reduced, potentially reduced opportunities you know, for, for, for those uh, it was targeted at originally. Uh, Norway has the highest proportion using the route, I think, and seems to be the most effective at reaching the target group. But the system of accreditation is seen as burdensome by some institutions because it's down to the institutions to do it. And therefore it's used by most, mostly by the sort of what, what I call recruiting institutions. And there might be a term you're familiar with, selective versus recruiting. Um, which is a debate we have here about, you know, where do students go from widening participation backgrounds. So, you know, is there an issue here about widening participation students being channeled into certain routes or having certain routes closed off to them? <coughs> and, and again, across Europe, I think it's quite interesting to, to, to look at this. Uh, when we, we were doing the LLL 2010 project, we asked some of our colleagues to, to show us what evidence there was for something like that across their countries. And in Austria, you can see that it's quite clear that the higher your socioeconomic status, the higher status institution you go to. And it's people from the lower socioeconomic status that go to the, the least prestige institutions. Equally in Flanders, this is a cohort that's been tracked over time. Uh, it's a similar stratification. So, <coughs> Sorry, Flemish, you're talking about the Flemish part of it? Yes, 
Yeah, the not, Flemish not the Francophone Belgian. No, no. This, this, they, they, they were very, they were very keen to say that they were Flemish and not because the, the, the education systems are so separate in, in, in Belgium. I don't know how familiar people are with that, but they have different school ministries in the different parts of Belgium, and so the, these data are from, uh, from, from the Flemish community. But again, it's the you know people who go to, to two-year colleges are far <coughs> more likely to come from low socioeconomic backgrounds compared to those from high socioeconomic backgrounds. So I'm going to conclude at that. I, I hope I'm not. No, 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 Is that no, fine? We were late setting off anyway. Yeah, that's fine. <coughs> With some thoughts on it. I mean, I think it's in a sense. I think these data raise more questions than answers any kind of. Uh, then provides any answers to the issues. But obviously there are substantial differences in employment rates uh, and at risk of poverty between most and least qualified. And it's more so in some countries than others. So widening access is an important issue, I think. Uh, the Bologna process shows commitment to widening access, and that's very much supported by some EU measures. <coughs> but I think uh, there's limited evidence of substantial progress in and the, um, the case study examples, I think, of alternative routes show that there is some success in widening participation, uh, but that a country's compulsory education system has a very strong impact on access to higher education, and mainstreaming of alternative routes can lead to advantages for non-target groups, such as in Sweden. Um, and there's considerable variation in target groups for widening access and in the data gathered. So how can we actually start to think about making it comparable? And how accurate are the data? I was puzzled when I was reading this uh, Eurydice report, which I only just sort of got, got hold of, that there was some data quoted for Scotland about widening access and how they'd kind of improved over a, a, a small number of years. I could find no um, comparison to the data on widening access that's published by the Higher Education Statistics Agency for Scotland or the Scottish Funding Councils, which actually does it for Scottish domicile students. They don't seem to link up. I am actually going to get in touch with the Scottish Government, I haven't had time to do that, that who feeds the data to Eurydice to see if they can explain to me why, where that data comes from. But it, 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 it's, it, it's interesting, and taking that with you know, your levels, ISCID levels, etc., some interesting issues, how we cope in Europe with making comparisons. Uh, there's also some evidence, uh, and we see that in this country as well, of um, widening access students uh, going more likely to go to low uh, prestige institutions. Um, and, you know, is this are the pressures of globalisation and league tables and research excellence, etc., creating those kind of pressures. And I think it was interesting, the um, interviews we've just been doing for our current project on higher education, which is looking at, um, at it in relation to uh, potential constitutional change, shall we say, in Scotland, um, with the independence referendum coming up. Uh, there was... <laughs> There was talk of, of um, sorry, lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, th no, I'm going to leave it just now. I'll come back to it. <laughs> um, oh yes, I know what it was. I was going to say sorry. And it was talk of the fact that universities can't solve the problem, but it's got to be the school system. 
And that was particularly strong from some of the elite institutions, that we can't help that people come better qualified when they come from private schools. I mean, that's slightly paraphrasing, but it, there was some of that in there. It is quite clear <coughs> that the education system has a role, but I think there's also a danger that you are shunting it all onto the schools. And there's an interesting other report which has just come out by, I think it was uh, Claire Crawford, who has shown that, in fact, students with the, the same level of qualifications at A-level who come from independent schools compared to those who, that come from state schools, the independent school people actually do worse when they go to university in terms of degree outcomes. So there are some issues there of saying, well, of course, they come with the best qualifications. So what? Um, if you have been, you know, to, to some schools. But it, it, it's not an easy one because I think the HISA data also show that students that come from very poor schools and have a lot of allowances made for them also don't do fantastically well, which actually means I think we have to look at what kind of support is there and how do we support students further down. But there are clearly enormous challenges, I think, in equalising access to education. And if you think back to the declaration uh, in the Bologna process of 2007 saying that we're going to equalize the, the, the you know the the, the the population that come in across it um, is that actually going to happen and will it particularly given the, the, the resource scarcity and the economic crisis we've just had um, you know so can we have equity with efficiency or have we moved to an era where the economic agenda trumps the social agenda I think is a big question so Thank you.